Today on Hacker Public Radio, the pseudonymous Deep Geek of Talk Geek to Me News interviews Brigitte Jonsdottir, Icelandic member of parliament for the Pirate Party. But first, the also pseudonymous Epicanus of dogphilosophy.net, that's me, will butt in for a few minutes so that I can pretend that I did any of the work. and it is summer in the Northern Hemisphere, and in accordance with the prophecy, Hacker Public Radio is running low on shows. A sacrifice must be offered to appease the internet spirits. All of you listeners are making that sacrifice right now by listening to my inane babble for a few minutes. You see, back in the old days, Hacker Public Radio used to pad the queue of pending shows by grabbing Creative Commons licensed audio from elsewhere and throwing those into the Hacker Public Radio feed. This occasionally caused some problems, though, by stalling shows that were made specifically for HPR during times when many people were contributing. In the end, it was decided that all Hacker Public Radio shows should be made specifically for Hacker Public Radio. There is a perfectly legitimate loophole here, though. A contributor can take a Creative Commons licensed show from somewhere else, and by adding some substantive commentary to introduce it, they can create a new derivative work for HPR from it. Today's derivative work comes from an interview Deep Geek got with a member of the Icelandic Pirate Party who has been elected to Parliament there. Since the Pirate Party is the only political party that I know of that is explicitly hacker-friendly, this seems like an obvious fit for HPR. Between Deep Geek and Brigitte Jonstadtir's interview and my few minutes here introducing it, you'll get a sense of what the Pirate Party is focused on right now, at least in Iceland, discussions of privacy and security in an age of government spying and control over the internet, and a little bit about neo-Freudian psychology and perhaps how many Freudians it takes to screw in a light bulb. Before I go away and turn the audio stream over to Deep Geek and Brigitte Jonstatir, there is one part of the interview I can't resist commenting on. Wilhelm freaking Reich? Seriously? Here's the context. At one point, the interview turns to the topic of government overreach and the potential societal harms of censorship, or at least that's how I heard it, to illustrate how censorship can rob society of beneficial discoveries, two examples are given, and I really want to suggest coming up with better examples for next time, at least if your goal is to convince anyone who is skeptical of your argument. The first example given was Timothy Leary. It's not that I don't think we might actually be missing out on useful results that might built off of his research from before he got fired from UC Ber Berkeley. After all, there's a whole series of FDA-approved drugs chemically related to LSD that are used to treat migraine headaches, dementia, Parkinson's disease symptoms, and a few other things. I just don't think Timothy Leary is a very persuasive example. Most people just know Timothy Leary as that turn-on, tune-in, drop-out hippie guy, and most of his notoriety seems to have more to do with the spectacle of him fleeing the country to escape marijuana possession charges than any serious research. Still, since most of the spectacle came from the U.S. government freaking out and trying to get him extradited from other countries, and the president at the time calling Leary, quote, the most dangerous man in America, unquote, you can at least make a case that that's a good example of government overreach. But the other example? Wilhelm Reich? For those who aren't familiar with the name, he started as a contemporary of Sigmund Freud and developed what seems to be a rather orgasm-centric theory of psychology. It's worth noting that, supposedly, even Sigmund freaking Freud himself, a man who in the modern era has basically been reduced to nothing but a series of jokes about how everything is a phallic symbol, he reviewed Reich's hypotheses and thought he was seriously oversimplifying things. You'll find a lot of lurid hyperventilation about orgasm-powered life energy if you look up Wilhelm Reich on the internet which by itself is enough to keep most people from taking him seriously, regardless of anything else, and that makes him an unuseful example. Don't mind the distracting sex stuff, though. Never mind the fact that his organomy is more or less the Dianetics of the 1940s, and never mind that what I've seen so far of it sounds awfully similar to the claims for pyramid power. The part that's relevant here is what's described as the banning and burning of his books. The background for this is that at the time, his Institute of Organomy was selling his life energy gathering boxes and seemingly promoting them as cures for cancer. The fact that he seems to have contemptuously dismissed investigators showing up to check things out and then refused to show up in court to defend his medical fraud case certainly didn't help. 
The court was obviously seriously annoyed with him and came down with a very heavy-handed punishment in the end. Even then, though, this was apparently not the implied hunting down and confiscation of all of his writings from libraries, private collectors, and so on, but specifically just requiring Reich to destroy just the copies that he had in stock for sale, along with the remaining life energy gathering boxes that he hadn't yet sold. While I still concur that even if one thinks Wilhelm Reich was completely knucking futz, this is pretty excessive. I still can't picture too many people managing to develop much outrage over it, though. Point is, in a time when there are documented cases of ordinary, mainstream, peer-reviewed scientists in the last five to ten years who have been told to shut up by their government employers because their findings aren't aligned with the political agendas of not just a U.S. administration, but, as I recall, also Harper's administration in Canada, surely you can find some more effective examples to work with. Anyway, there. I have contributed original content to this episode, and I hereby declare it a derivative work. Hooray for me! Now, here's the interview by Deep Geek, who actually did all of the real work that I'm pretending I had anything to do with. You're listening to TGTM News number 100, recorded for Sunday, July the 7th, 2013. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is DGTGTM, as in DeepGeek, TalkGeek to me. Hey, it's DeepGeek. Hello and welcome to a very special episode of TGTM News. While away in Europe, I have had the opportunity to interview Icelandic Member of Parliament, Birgitta Johnstater. I caught up with Brigida at a scheduled time on July the 2nd at Parliament for our interview, and literally she was in panic mode. Turns out that United Nations General Secretary Ban Ki-moon was in the Parliament building also and had just insulted Iceland's sovereignty to Brigida Honstetter. She had to rush out to a meeting, asked me to wait for a quarter hour, came back, and just did not want to deny me the opportunity, so she rescheduled for July the 4th. Upon catching up with her for the second time on July the 4th, well, I'll let the interview explain it all. I I do want to fully transcribe this interview. That will take me quite some time, but I'll publish when I get the first few questions and answers transcribed. But to give you a perspective of when this interview took place, uh, it was maybe uh, days after the Snowden release of documents about the NSA's sweeping surveillance system of the Internet. Snowden was in Russia, was just denied favorable terms for his asylum request in Russia. Ban Ki-moon wasn't visiting there. After Snowden applied to Iceland for asylum, uh, which request was received by Asylum's Foreign Secretary. And when I got back, caught back up for the second time with Brigida, she had an article in The Guardian, which she was the prime source for, was published explaining Ban Ki-moon's public faux pas. Upon arriving back to edit the audio, I discovered that Venezuela had offered asylum to Snowden and a bill for citizenship in Iceland for Snowden was deferred in the Icelandic parliament, to which Brigitte Honstetter wrote a personal English blog entry. So that gives you the perspective of what happened. I did want to mention to you also the interview went exceedingly well. Brigitte has a unique response to being interviewed. I, I really believe that if I just put a microphone in front of her, it would have been just wonderful enough but I didn't manage to steer the conversation. But normally when I interview, I have to prod and poke a little bit with the interviewee, as some of you who've heard my past interviews know. I really needed to do no antics. I think that my peculiar focus on the subject of the interview, I really try to hold anything about myself back and focus razor-sharp on the person I'm interviewing. I think that might have thrown her a bit here and there, but overall, this 
synergy between my interview's focus and her conversational mode produced an interview that sounds more like just a, a beautiful conversation. So I do hope you enjoy this conversation with Brigitte Jonchater. Thank you. Did you see the news what I did to Ban Ki-moon? No, I want to ask about that. I haven't been in touch with the news, actually. <coughs> what happened with you and Ban Ki-moon? Ah, okay, I'll show you. Um, you've been following, of course, the Snowden case, haven't you? Yes, I have. I yeah. want to ask you about it, actually. I was invited because uh, I have been sort of the parliamentarian for the pirates and, and uh, my the other party I was in, active in the foreign affairs. And uh, so I'm, I'm always invited to these uh, leadership meetings uh, with the foreign blah blah. So I was invited to the Banking Moon meeting with the rest of the uh, parliamentary delegation. Basically, I asked them, like, I was really concerned and focused on privacy issues when it came to online privacy, and especially in the light of what's been being revealed in the last week, if it wouldn't be a good place to start to sort of go back to fight it. This invasion, uh, and I was really primarily concerned about the general public, not so much the leaders, mm-hmm. that we would include in the UN Declaration for Human Rights the word privacy in front of, uh, no, online in front of privacy uh, in Article 12. And instead of addressing that, he decided to say that with all these freedoms we have online, individuals need to behave with responsibility and there was a lot of misuse and uh, people like Snowden and Assange were part of the problem by misusing the technology that was not intended to be used in this way. So what I did, uh, because I don't like, I was really upset and uh, I don't think that he knew who I was uh, (laughs) or he would have been maybe a little bit more careful, but it was very serious because at the time, it was just hours after Snowden had applied for political asylum in Iceland. Mm-hmm. And he is saying this, his personal opinion, in front of the Foreign Affairs Committee in Iceland. And Snowden's uh, assignment, um, asylum seeking, had been uh, passed through the Foreign Affairs Ministry. Uh, and so I felt it was mantling with our internal affairs that it should not be the role and responsibility of the UN Secretary General. So I decided to go public with it. Uh, it's on a very great song, but I have often said things about what happens at meetings like this because I'm sort of the, the public's Freedom of Information Act plucking into power. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I contacted The Guardian and asked them you know, if they were willing to run this story. And after lots of verifications, they, they were very careful. So I, I got other people that were at the meeting to confirm that I wasn't just making it up. Uh, they published it yesterday. Oh, fantastic. So basically, it uh, showed that the emperor was not wearing any clothes. So basically, yeah, it was one of the most read stories on the uh, world news uh, section, online world news section at uh, The Guardian yesterday. The Guardian. Edward Snowden's digital misuse has created problems. Says Ban Ki-moon. Actually, do you know what uh, Banki means? Like Ban Ki. No, I don't. It means bank. Banki. Oh. <laughs> if that's his chief contributor to his political <laughs> campaign, that might be a problem. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so you see, it's been passed around quite a bit. Yes. Already shared thousands of times. And that's why I was sort of running around like crazy after I met you guys, because I was trying to uh, get this uh, story going. Well, I do appreciate you rescheduling me and making the time for me. I know it's I'm interrupting a summer session. It's a big deal for me. I appreciate it so much. My pleasure. Since I was going to ask a little bit later about Snowden, I want to know how you felt about the difference between the way Snowden came forth through The Guardian mm-hmm. and the way that Bradley Manning came forth through WikiLeaks. There is not a lot of difference between uh, these two cases in the sense that uh, Bradley Manning did try to uh, go through uh, the New York Times uh, and I think it was the Washington Post, but they didn't take it seriously. So he had tried to, to go directly to mainstream media to get an assistance with his story which they uh, and be a source for them. Uh, so he went through WikiLeaks, but WikiLeaks did what? They went in collaboration with, among other publications, The Guardian. Yes. So, uh, and I think that maybe that was an example that uh, Snowden saw that The Guardian 
were willing to and have the capacity actually to uh, sift through all the wealth of information and draw out of it the, the message to the general public that Snowden was trying to relay. Uh, I mean, if you would only publish the raw documents, uh, I remember I actually got to see all the raw, the entire leak, which has now been clarified, was from Bradley Manning and. It was just so much that it was very difficult to understand or get any sort of lid on what was in it. I mean, and, and so it was so valuable that actually, uh, and that's why it is important that there are some mainstream media left that are actually have the capacity, the passion, and the understanding of the importance of being the true power that belongs to them, which is to take complex things and work through them in such a way that uh, the peoples can understand their societies. So, and that is a lot of work. It's a lot more complicated and it requires a lot more expertise than many people think. And this is why we have so much crappy media, which is just like you have all the mainstream media like CNN and you know, the Fox and so forth. I was actually quite shocked when I saw the American version of uh, CNN, for example. It's it's not news. It's news infomercials. Yes. You know, it is not, there is no depth. Uh, you can't trust what you see there. Uh, instead of, for example, covering what's happening in Egypt, they're covering a local murder trials. Uh, and which is sort of, it's news infomercials it's or news soap operas i remember i was i don't remember what was the breaking story i was in the states uh no i was in canada and you only got the american version of cnn there too and it was something really remarkable happening in the world at the time which i could see through the internet uh but the only thing that was on cnn was that some guy some high-ranking person had tweeted a picture of his penis and it was like live everywhere interviews with people yeah. experts on penises I don't and, know <laughs> and now he's going to run for mayor of New York right yeah, it's, it's amazing <laughs> that's how back you are but I'm very concerned I'm very concerned just with the latest incidents in relation to Snowden for example uh, and the latest incidents are this a presidential airplane is not being granted airspace because of suspicion that he was hiding Snowden in the bathroom in the airplane or something. You haven't heard about this. They no, stopped, like Evo Morales, the president of Bolivia, was at a conference um, on energy or something like that in uh, Moscow. Mm -hmm. And he had been asked, like every leader in the world, are you willing to, uh, if, if Snowden would apply for political asylum, would you grant him asylum or consider it? And he said something along the lines that he would, of course, uh, look into it. And so he's going back home on his plane. This is uh, an elected president in a country. It's like Obama. Mm -hmm. uh, and he's flying home from Moscow, and he needs to refuel and go through countries in Europe. And he's rerouted all over Europe because Portugal and France said that he, his flight could not come through because they were afraid that Snowden was in their airspace. And in the end, he got to land in Vienna, which is in Austria. He had to wait there for 12 hours while his airplane was being searched. Unbelievable. So what, how would the United States people, if the same thing would happen to Obama? I mean, the United States doesn't exactly have a very good track record when it comes to honoring human rights, for yeah. example. Uh, we, we only have to look towards Cuba, where Guantanamo Bay is, or what's been happening in Cuba for a long time. I mean, the Cold War is over, isn't it? Yeah, <laughs> <It's> supposedly. Like... <laughs> Some countries in Europe would decide to do this. Just, you know, they were actually putting the life of this president in danger because he was running out of fuel. And so what I'm concerned, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of uh, Naomi Wolf, but she wrote a remarkable book about how the United States is declining into fascism. And, uh, you know, fascism by definition by Mussolini, for example, and he actually used to call his form of governing corpocracy, and then he changed it into fascism because uh, I guess it sounded more sexy or something. I don't know. And it's actually the same definition that our former president that um, FDR used. Yes, yeah, so it's the perfect definition. marriage between the corporate right. and the state. And you, so, so you have the, it's not only that the door is revolving between the corporate and the state. Uh, they're literally dancing in it. And they are 
the gestures that look us in the face and say, look, you can't do anything to change this. We own you. We own your leaders. Mm-hmm. And so what are you going to do? You have this two-party system that is fake. It's nothing real about this. It doesn't matter who is in leadership. They don't control anything. It's the corporation that control everything. And it's the same everywhere. It's just... It's because you have all this military power and you have all this corruption that you have allowed to thrive because you're waiting for the gold dust and the diamond dews to trickle down, which is never well. It only trickles trickles down to anybody if they choose to. You've been just... It's so sad because there is so much greatness within the United States. And it's not through Hollywood or, you know... It's it's through this um, system of resistance. Uh, so you have incredible people that have, and you find them everywhere, that are very imaginative. They put so much work on themselves to volunteer, to uh, bring forward solutions. But they are being tracked down like wild animals because of the capacity of the government to monitor everything. People think like, oh, it's okay, I feel safer that they're going to get the terrorists because, and you know, I feel safer. I don't care if they completely invade my privacy. It's okay, I haven't done anything wrong. Now, when people say this to me, or people in Iceland say to me, I I was just having a conversation with an MP yesterday. I was just sort of like a congressman. And I was... um, talking about this NSA thing with him and I said, oh, we should feel privileged that somebody wants to spy on us, little us, powerless us. And I was like, you don't understand what this means, do you? You don't understand that this means that now I'm talking to you and now you are a target. How does that feel? Now they're going to spy on you because I'm talking to you. How does it feel knowing that journalists can't protect their sources? How does it feel that a doctor can't honor the privacy of his patient? How does it feel that um, a lawyer can't honor the privacy and the confidentiality between him and his client? How does it feel that a corporation or a private little firm can't keep any contract under seal while they're negotiating? How does it feel that nothing is private? And he's sort of like, uh... <laughs> yeah, was not prepared for it. No. But there's an interesting parallel there between that case and the way the, the Obama administration pried into your Twitter, Twitter record, records. Yes. Because, again, without regard to your being a parliamentarian, they just waltzed right in there with subpoenas, and your fight with that is legendary. But I don't think my listeners, or I think my, I should say, I think my listeners would really benefit from knowing the difference between the government just subpoenaing a regular rank and file citizens' records and them going after a representative's Twitter activity. The only reason I decided to take this case, and I was fortunate I wouldn't have never been able to afford it if I wouldn't have been given a pro bono uh, treatment by the Electronic Frontier Foundation, the EFF.org, and the ACLU, uh, which they did a formidable uh, or really great work. and they decided to help me because it was sort of a test on the system and uh, the justice system for everybody else. I only took it on because I wanted to try to get your listeners and anybody else that use any form of digital media to understand that we don't have any rights, mm-hmm. to understand that this invasion is just as invasive as if they go into your own home and actually worse. So I say, okay, the FBI actually went into my home. They went into my home and they went through all my private stuff, all my private letters. Uh, They went through all my bills. They could see exactly where I was, with whom, and for how long. And they could see just just everything about me. Uh, And, you know, they studied the stuff in my fridge and the books I read and, and everything. And they actually... I went into my home through my back door, mm-hmm. you know, through my internet back door. I do think that you have a better perspective on this because I did read that wonderful. And I want to talk to you about this. Your, your your English language blog. You made this great post a while back about you self-identifying yourself 
as a hacker. And as hackers, we've both known for a long time that we've lived online quite a bit. Now, right. lately, it's been said that if it doesn't happen online, it doesn't happen. Could you talk about the penetration of the idea to the general public? Right. You know, the transition to them understanding that it's just a perfect, perfect mirror to the real world? Exactly. Uh, this is a very important question. I've lived online. It's been my uh, most permanent home since 95. That's my permanent home, and that's where uh, my history, uh, my library of my life, or isn't there like a TV show called This Is Your Life? Yeah. Okay. Uh, so that's where it's been building up for that epic show or whatever. <laughs> and uh, uh, so... Everything, the internet doesn't forget, and this is what people, like, you can actually burn your letters if you don't want anybody to see your old diary, you can burn it. Mm -hmm. But the blogs, when they started, and I actually had one of the world's first blogs in 95 and 96, they don't go. They're there forever. Uh, and so you can't erase your history, like, you can't actually, like, uh, and sometimes it's good to be able to just forget uh, and, and erase stuff, and like, diaries that you write when you're a teenager or whatever. <laughs> but the internet doesn't forget. And this is what the whole generation is actually experiencing. It's usually younger people that are born into the internet. Uh, and so everything they do and say and all the party photos that are tagged, they might never be able to get a job because of that. Yeah. Uh, that's one one uh, element of it. The other element is, uh, and this is very critical, is let's say you post the story about that your mom has cancer. And let's say that later on you want to get insurance. Uh, and let's say the insurance company can actually pull out all the passwords that relate to you and they might find out that you were doing either a search on cancer uh, you might then you might not get as good insurance as somebody else and there's actually been studies like i don't i'm not only worried about governments i'm also worried about the corporations uh, that uh, harvest our history they they go through our traps all the time uh it's like having somebody in your yard uh, and in your home and in your bedroom uh like you can actually in your phone the phones are actually worse than the computers because we allow the phone to know exactly where we are we use like it's always asking you this program wants to know if you allow us to know where you are yeah. And not only that, uh, we do our workouts, we, we use programs that monitor how we sleep <laughs> to help us sleep better. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, some insurance company or some company might want to push uh, stuff to us uh, or medical companies or whatever. And they completely psychologically profile us. This is now, since nothing's forgotten. And now we found out the government, uh, it's not only the private corporations we have to deal with. Uh, and, and there's one element to all of this, and this is what many people don't know. Uh, like the first court ruling in my Twitter case, uh -huh. the judge basically said that I, as an individual, you as an individual, and everybody listening to this, we don't have the right to look after our own back. We have to rely on the social media companies to look after our interest. It might not always be in their interest. They might not have the capacity to fight it. And now there is a much bigger and wider angle to my story. Uh, okay, so I'm a member of parliament, and it's upsetting that they have this invasion into somebody that was had a seat in the Foreign Affairs Committee. I'm a member of the NATO Parliamentary Assembly and so forth. So, I mean, some information might be compromised. That should be state or you know, even bigger uh, secrecy around. But what I'm chiefly concerned about in that is that I can't protect you if you write to me. Because it's not only me. This is communications that they're sniffing. Um, and their case, I don't have a criminal case against me in the United States. They still went after a members of parliaments, a congresswoman's uh, private data. And it was not my tweets. It was my private messages. It was my IP number. Uh, and uh, lots of other, host of other information they, they wanted to get. Uh, people can actually go and look into it and see the subpoena uh, at the EFF.org website if they, they just uh, search my last name. Now, that's not all. So... They, there were, my lawyers figured that there was some paper on me in a grand jury. 
Uh, they can't have that unsealed. They're, I can understand it's a secret jury system, which is weird, and I don't understand it. Uh, you know, I don't know what that is. But, but it's not uh, exactly <laughs> a secret. I mean, we now know, we now can guess which grand jury it was. Yes, it's uh, based in Virginia, and it's called What the Fuck, or the Victor's Task Force. So, but there were four other companies that I cannot get from under seal that delivered all my personal stuff to the government. Now, after the NSA, and this is what I find to be so interesting, is that it's obvious it's Google, it's Skype, or Microsoft, which owns Skype. Uh, Now, people might think that it's safe to talk through Skype. Forget it. Nothing, nothing, nothing you do in a computer or via phone is safe. Mm-hmm. Just forget it. We might want to try to encrypt us, but it's just too complicated for the ordinary citizens to use to protect themselves. So, Facebook, Google, you know, and under Google is like YouTube, Gmail, everything. Uh, and But Twitter, Twitter were not on the NSA slide because Twitter has actually stood up. And it's not because they have less compromising information about you. It's not because they're not in America. It's because they have damn good policies and lawyers. You know, they invest and they they protect their users or the the inhabitants in the Twitter world. And the other companies might actually do much better. But not only is this invasion sort of okay because, hey, I haven't done anything wrong. But you never know. You might just type in, I hate Al-Qaeda, and then you are in the net. Yeah. Or you you could accidentally cut and paste a, a statement that you were fooling with accidentally put it into the Google search box, yeah, and now it's in Google. Or if you're a researcher, you're a teacher, you're um, anybody that's curious about the world around you. Now, I don't only search stuff that I like, even if Google is trying to make me. <laughs> <laughs> because many people might not know that when I search something, let's say I search for Egypt, and then some some of the listeners or you search Egypt, we will get entirely different search results. So I encourage people to uh, use Google Duck. It's a really good search engine and it's not like Google. I would encourage people to use, uh, go to the Tor project, it's T-O-R. Download protection. You don't want the government to know wherever you go in your real life. Do you want somebody to follow you when you go to the shop and, and look what you're putting in your basket? Do you want them to know who you're kissing and who you're not? Do you want them to know what you say to your kids? Do they want them to know what you're doing in your bedroom? I mean, in some states it's actually illegal, which is bizarre, but it's illegal to do certain things in the bedroom. (laughs) But I'm worried, I mean, I really would like my friends in the United States uh, that have not caved in to... um, uh, fear to unify themselves more about one or two issues they can be in unison about across groups, you know, all the different groups uh, that are trying to rise up. Because you're never going to change anything if you allow them to do the divide and conquer. We can't change it. And that's the beauty about crisis, is that crisis offer not only misery, it offers an incredibly small window for incredible change. But you just have to be ready. To pounce on it. Exactly. You were talking before about the corporate invasions of privacy, and I'd like to ask you for your thoughts on two corporations. First, first of all is Google, because as you've implied, that you are your search history to a certain extent. Yeah. Now, quite a while ago, in order to hone their ability to do voice recognition, mm-hmm. they became a telco in the U.S. They're actually huh. like, like AT&T or Verizon. They're actually licensed as a telco. Right. And the telcos have always been notorious in my country mm-hmm. for being in bed with the federal government. Right. So I want to know about your thoughts about Google, Google's history-making ability in relationship to their closeness to the federal government of the United States. Google is too big. And Google, the people that run it, uh, Eric Smith, for example, uh, was very much against people being able to be anonymous. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was a policy to uh, just erase that possibility. Uh, and since Google has been, like I used to, to use uh, Google when they just started, uh, and now they own everything. Uh, and so they need to, people just simply, it's like it's impossible to break them down. It's not going to happen. They're too big. Just like Microsoft became too big 
and now Microsoft is being eaten itself, uh, like is getting smaller, but Apple is becoming too big. Uh, and Apple also is a, a dangerous uh, development there. I love Apple products. I used mm-hmm. Apples since 87, uh, but I don't love Apple anymore. I don't love it. I really despise it because of the invasion they have allowed into our lives. Uh, the, the Apple phones are one of the worst spy tools. And we can't protect ourselves as much with Apple products because it's so closed down, so you don't have this sort of open source community around Apple as you have around, for example, the Androids. So the only way we can change this is both. Uh, there are two ways. It's both for the general public to be more knowledgeable. Uh, and how do we acquire knowledge? We do that through legalizing freedom of information. Now, I, after I became a lawmaker, I have to say that I didn't have a lot of respect for laws before. Uh, I don't have any respect for laws now. Uh, I know how they're written. It's, it's horrible. It is just so horrible how laws are written. Something that actually, like in Iceland, affects thousands and thousands of people uh, is uh, processed here through um, way too much rush. It's very faulty. It's very badly uh, checked. Uh, There might be, uh, we don't know who writes it because it's done in the ministries and there you have the lobbyists and it's a very similar process in your country so uh, i don't like laws because they're not they're only protecting a certain elite group you can never reach them you know because they write the loopholes you know for their lawyers their armies and troops of lawyers and yet you tell me this and you're the chief proponent i understand of the icelandic modern media initiative Yes. Which is, of course, a, a, a body of laws. Exactly. Uh, so I recognize, because I'm pragmatic, uh, so I recognize that we live in the, by the rule of law. Uh, so while you're at it, uh, while you have the capacity to influence it, it's very important to use that. But I very much am looking at the Icelandic Modern Media Initiative. Inspiration to get a collective common demand that our rights are being protected. The right to know, the right to share, the right to share knowledge, uh, the right to uh, have our sovereignty and privacy, and the right to be creative and to be sustainable and to do whatever we want as long as we're not harming others. I was just thinking about like the other day, how insane is it that why are we having all these scientists doing studies on like uh, what's bad for us and what's good for us? There is no one like, okay, it's really bad for me if I sit on the phone all day, I'm sure that I'm going to fry my brain. Mm-hmm. If I, uh, uh, but it doesn't change it. That knowledge doesn't change it that I am still going to be using my phone. If I drink products that I don't know what's in it, it is bad for me, no matter what. So, uh, but I don't have the knowledge to know it's bad for me. I don't care. Like they're, they're always like giving you these. Like according to scientists, uh, red wine is bad, good, bad, 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 good, and this much quantity, quantity. Why aren't we using all this incredible knowledge, all this money, to figure out ways so that we don't have to live in a world w- where we're sabotaging ourselves and the planet? Mm-hmm. Why aren't we doing that? You know, why are we allowing animal abuse in the name of science? Why are we allowing people's abuse in third world countries in the name of science? Uh, And why don't we understand we're running out of planet? And why don't we do something about it? Why are we sitting and arguing about global warming? Where it is like, it is something's happening. I don't know if it's made by man or not. I don't really care, but it's happening. And how are we going to deal with it? How are we going to deal with it? Like, all these countries are going underwater and you're going to get, like, lots and lots of more of extreme weather. What are we going to do about it? You know, I don't want to, like, live in a world where I'm in a bunker with a rifle. No, you no know. one wants that. Well, there are. Yeah. It's like, there are so many people that actually want it. Uh, and then you have these things, like, in the States, I, I thought it was the country of the free, uh, where people, you know, go in the woods and they build a little house and they just want to be self-sustainable. And... They're driven out. What happened? 
It's, it's shocking. But I'm glad you brought up scientists because I've been planning a question for a while. It might be a little hard for me to express. Right. But your, your, your work with, with, with human rights is, is, you know, of course, world-renowned at this point. Um, but they've all dealt with political dissidents. Yes. And we have two landmark cases, if I might take a minute to explain this properly yes. to you in America, where the rights of scientists were violated. Right. And one of them is in the 50s we had Dr. Wilhelm Reich, yeah, I know him, yeah. He came over from Germany where his books were banned and he was jailed by um, the Nazi party. Mm-hmm. And when he came to America, America banned his books and jailed him too. Yes. And then later and on... The food, uh, what is it called? The Food and Drug... Uh, the Food and Drug Administration, yeah, yeah, yeah. prompted by the American Medical Association. Of course. <laughs> uh, later on, about a decade later, we had Dr. Timothy Leary, who did yes. pioneering work in psychology, mm-hmm. began running double-blind experiments of the use of LSD to make positive changes in human personality. Mm-hmm. Things like dropping recidivism rate for felons. Things like whether or not you could induce religious experience using LSD-25. He was jailed for 30 years for possession of one joint of marijuana, a bizarre, bizarre occurrence, obviously a political prisoner because that normal, the normal jail in Texas at that time was five years for that, for the same five time. Five years for that? Oh yeah. And he got 30. Wow. You know. <laughs> That's crazy. Oh my God. Now, it's illegal to reperform the experiments of Reich or Leary. Really? Yes. Huh. So I want to know if you thought about the application of your work, not merely to political dissidents, but to doctors and researchers. Well, I like my work doesn't only evolve around dissidents in in that sense. My work evolves around like I take the fight, like if I can apply myself, like everything has its timing and uh, and so forth. But I apply myself wherever I see violations of human rights. I don't care. Uh, if it's, uh, you know, uh, if I go up against uh, the General Secretary of the United Nations or if I go up against the Chinese government or the U.S. government or the Russian government, I don't have any friends, mm-hmm. uh, uh, political friends. Yeah, or at least not elite friends. Uh, and, um, <clears throat> but, so, but I, I find that to be very interesting that you can't, redo these experiments which is very strange to me uh, I did read uh, many many years ago uh, the book by Reich uh, about uh, his um, his box yeah and and it was very interested um, there are so many people like that that have been doing experimentation with free energy and and that have been you know uh, killed or imprisoned uh, or you know threatened we have very strong weird powers at play and you can see it so clearly in the Snowden case where you can see leader after leader nation after nation caving in to the pressure but it's also we're at this incredible time now in history where things are shifting and changing and it is up to us how it's going to shift and how it's going to change. I do have a lot of respect for many scientists, but I don't share the respect for the big pharmaceuticals that have incredible influence on the work of scientists. Uh, I don't have respect for Monsanto. I don't have respect for the aluminum industry or the mining industry or the petroleum industry. I do not have any respect for maximizing profit, and I don't care where it is. I do not respect the criminalization of drug use. I do not respect uh, and I refuse to honor the uh, prison industry. I refuse to honor that many things that should be a part of our social infrastructure and it has nothing to do with communism. It just has something to do with common sense. I, uh, that like that we have health care that's free for everybody. What are people paying taxes for? You know, why is the entire infrastructure in the United States collapsing? Every time I go there or, you know, uh, look at news there, there is a bridge that just collapsed or, you know, your infrastructure is absolutely collapsing. What are you paying your taxes for? So I think and what I'm really keen in uh, doing is to start to work on the new system. 
because this system that we have now is completely out of date. It allows the corruption and the plunge, plungering of uh, the assets that should the the joint assets that everybody should share. Uh, the water systems are being destroyed. Uh, and I encourage everybody to see a very, very critical and important film called Flow, For the Love of Water. And I encourage everybody to see a French documentary film with subtitles uh, about Monsanto. I don't remember the name of it. Uh, you have to know what you're dealing with, all of us. We're all dealing with the consequences of this. The greed and the short-sightedness is so dangerous. So I believe in... The forefathers, I believe in the uh, wisdom of the original people in the United States. I happen to be one-fourth Cherokee. Really? Uh, and uh, according to my father, I don't know if it's true, but that's what he claims. Um, uh, there were some people uh, from uh, Native Americans that were here at the base. Uh, and apparently some Icelandic women got... Uh, you know, had uh, relationships with uh, people from the base. Uh, and so I've been, I've always looked uh, with interest and been very curious about my heritage, which I don't know very much about. I don't know anybody from that family. Uh, and the way they governed in the old days, I don't know how they do it today in the modern society, was that they would only make decisions for the greater good of the next seven generations. And that was with, of course, the support of the previous seven generations. So it was a holistic approach to decision-making, uh, which we sorely lack today. We only, like politicians, only think for next term, which is usually four or five years. Uh, so I'm so, I just want people so much to start to think what we want instead of this broken system. Because as soon as we start to visualize what is the end result, what is, uh, what is, like, where do I feel that I have achieved my dream about humanity? You know, we need to start to think about it because the power of our minds and our words is so incredible. Just think about Brave New World in 1984 and the power they've had to make our world really messed up. <laughs> and so why don't we have that sort of similar vision where we collectively start to see something beautiful and whole for our planet and the peoples and everybody that lives on it? I promised you I wouldn't ask you about a certain person who founded right. a certain organization. But I do want to ask you a question, one question about WikiLeaks. Okay. And the founder of that body wrote an essay on governance as a conspiracy when mm -hmm. he was posing to a, a mailing list called cypherpunks oh, yeah, yeah. and discussed the idea of liberating the secrets that the, gov the politicians and the corporations keep from us onto the outside. And I right. wanted to ask you if you thought that WikiLeaks is living up to its original plan or if it has somehow vastly deviated from that. I think, uh, Mike, and I'm glad that somebody else enjoys writing the cyberpunk, uh, or I say cyberpunks, but I know it's wrong, but uh, uh, I can't say that word uh, correctly. Uh, and I, I think in many ways, uh, and I, I contribute, like, and I honor uh, the knowledge and wisdom uh, that uh, Assange has. Uh, and... Um, you know, the best moments we had as friends uh, back in the old days, it feels, uh, was when we were, you know, having discussions about society and human nature and all these things. Uh, I learned a lot from him in that regard. Um, I think that WikiLeaks in many ways is, uh, you know, despite what people think, it's a very tiny organization. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, in many ways, some of the things about the organization are way off track. And at the same time, it is still on track because it is it's him. Uh, and uh, I can't judge. Like, people change and their values. So the original idea I was very fascinated about, and I still think that they're doing a lot in that regard. They did the, uh, the spy files, which was actually the prelude to the NSA. 
mm-hmm. link uh, and gives you a lot of context. I think, you know, as much as I would love to criticize the way he is running it, uh, it's his project. He runs it the way he wants to. In the, the larger picture, what WikiLeaks did is so important. And I, you know, I, I could be very critical. I don't think it's worth it because I think it is time we stop trolling each other, mm-hmm. at least in public. <laughs> <laughs> you know, with WikiLeaks, um, I did read an interview you did with Der Standard, a Belgium online publication, and you called it um, MegaLeaks. Yes. Was that a re- reference to Kim.com? No, it wasn't. It wasn't. But that's the funny thing. Uh, because, uh, like, WikiLeaks used to do a lot of small projects. Like, when I was involved, there were lots of little leaks. Uh, like, uh, so it was, and it was more sort of, it originally started as a sort of crowdsourced sort of wiki project uh, where we were trying to get people involved from many different. Uh, uh, backgrounds to work on stories and the my dream around this was that we could get let's say it was a big story we could have like uh the day of the league the the, the league where you would have joint resources of activists and journalists from all over the world to let's say cover bp when the big oil spill was mm-hmm. and so forth so you could actually then get lots of stories that never got any attention into the mainstream media uh, and into the public knowledge so um, then it became just like they got these troves of documents. Uh, so it became like a mega league. Uh, and uh, it was a very, very big league. <laughs> <laughs> well, Brigitte, I cannot thank you enough for granting me this interview. It means so very much to yeah, me. I'm very happy. Thank you so much. My pleasure. <laughs> <laughs> thank you for listening to this episode of Talk Geek to Me. Here are the vile statistics for this program. Your feedback matters to me. Please send your comments to dg at deepgeek.us. The webpage for this program is at www.talkgeektome.us. You can subscribe to me on Identica as the username DeepGeek, or you could follow me on Twitter. My username there is dgtgtm, as in DeepGeek. Talk Geek to Me. This episode of Talk Geek to Me is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Share Like 3.0 Unpoured License. This license allows commercial reuse of the work as well as allowing you to modify the work so long as you share alike the same rights you have received under this license. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All BinRef projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license. So, how many Freudians does it take to screw in a light bulb? I know you think this is some sort of a racy pun here, but the joke is it's sort of an anti-joke. Freudian psychologists are just regular people otherwise, and so the answer, just like with any other kind of regular people, is that it just takes two of them. One to change the light bulb, and one to hold the penis ladder. Hold the ladder.